Race matters. 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 I'd like to acknowledge that we are broadcasting on unceded Gadigal land. This land has been in the hands of generations of Gadigal custodians for thousands of years before us, and it will continue to be in their hands for a long time after us. It's a meeting place for sharing knowledge and stories and song, and we are privileged to be part of that storytelling today and every day here at FBI Radio. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders past and present. We're broadcasting from Redfern right now. Redfern is the birthplace of black theatre in this country, and it's a site for resistance and resilience for First Nations peoples. You are listening to Race Matters. This is a show made by people of colour, speaking with people of colour about the ways we understand and value our racial identities. I'm Darren Lasagas, and if you choose Tune in every other week. I mean, you heard me do it just then. You hear us acknowledge the history of the site that we make radio from as the birthplace of black theatre. This is a long, radical tradition born from an emerging land rights movement in the 70s. Uh, Black theatre advocated a grassroots approach to theatre involving performances, demonstrations, dance and workshops based on a vision of theatre as for and by the people whose struggles it sought to represent. It's a legacy of black theatre that shows like race matters are able to exist and we're really honoured that our guest today is someone who helped craft that creative and political tradition. Dr Gary Foley is a Gombangir historian, educator, activist. For decades, he's been at the helm of some of the most pivotal civil rights movements and an outspoken voice for First Nations justice. He's been a part of creating community-led services like Redfern's Aboriginal Legal Service, the Aboriginal Health Service in Melbourne, and National Black Theatre, long been a part of the ongoing movement for decolonisation. A film exploring this movement, uh, these movements has just been re-released and has been screening this weekend. It's called Ningla Ana, Hungry for Our Land. It's an iconic feature documentary that tells the inside story of the establishment uh, of the Aboriginal Tent Embassy in 1972. It features interviews with black activists and rare fu- uh, footage, and it's the only film to focus on the Tent Embassy and uh, is an historic document. And it's integral to understanding the ongoing political struggle and power of First Nations communities. We'll be joined by Dr. Gary Foley chatting with us ahead of a screening of Ningla Ana this afternoon as well as tomorrow and Wednesday. We have Dr. Gary Foley on the line with us to talk all about it. Dr. Gary, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning. Good morning. This is a re-release of a, a documentary made in 1972. Uh, the film traces the history of uh, the Tent Embassy from that era and the work of the National Black Theatre, Aboriginal Legal Service and Aboriginal Medical Service. What's it like reflecting on a documentary that was made in the 70s, considering the generations of change that have happened since then? Um, Well, the first thing is that this um, new remastered version um, is somehow or other better quality visually than the original 16mm version that I saw 50 years ago. So it... um, it represents for me a, a multitude of feelings because I watch it 50 years later and uh, every time I watch it, I realise that another person 
another one of my fellow activists from that period is no longer with us. You know, the sad reality for me is that 90% of the Aboriginal people in that film are today dead, you know, which is insane. And it, it reflects the reality of the um, difference in life expectancy between Aboriginal people and white Australia still to this day. Um, so it makes me sad watching it, but those were exciting times, you know. There were lots of things, interesting things happening locally and globally, politically. Big anti-Vietnam uh, War movement, uh, the women's movement was gaining traction. Uh, um, the gay liberation movement was uh, in its early days. Uh, there were, you know, um, interest, interesting things happening in decolonization in Africa and Asia. You know, the period of the 50s, 60s and were um, interesting times for a young Aboriginal uh, person to observe and be part of. Can you take us back to when you first watched the documentary 50 years ago? Do you remember that time? Whenever I try and remember things from back then, I usually have to consult my ASIO file. <laughs> um, 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 I can. I got vague memories of the uh, the first times I saw the film. I mean, it was a pretty uh, uh, explosive film then and now because. You know, these two Italian brothers, uh, Alessandro and Fabio Cavadini, had um, been given permission by the leaders of the Black Power Movement in Redfern to just film whatever they liked in our midst. And they captured, I think, um, they captured fairly well the mood and the sense of the times, you know, um, the Black Power Movement had just um, started a campaign which we based on ideas that we'd stolen from the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. And um, we'd taken on uh, the corrupt New South Wales police of the time. And if people think I'm exaggerating there, go and look at your history of the New South Wales police force at that time, you know, and um, one of the most corrupt squads in the New South Wales Police at the time was an outfit called the 21 Division, who'd been sent into Redfern to, to, you know, take down the, the Black Power movement, you know. We took them on and the end result was the New South Wales Aboriginal Legal Service, you know, and, and not long after that, driven by one of the great matriarchs of Redfern, Mum Shell. Um, we created the first free shopfront health clinic for anyone in Australia, the Redfern Aboriginal Medical Service. We introduced the idea of free legal aid into Australia, you know. Uh, two years later, Gough Whitlam made it universal free legal aid, along with free university education. And both of those things were taken off Australia by the next um, 
allegedly Labor government, the Hawke-Keating government. But I won't give you the history lesson <laughs> here <laughs> this morning. <laughs> well, that's the thing, you know, the important part is looking back to our history to understand, uh, you know, what's going on now, the good things uh, and the bad things and everything in between. I know it's been, you know, 50 years since the original release of the film. It's a huge milestone. But what other considerations did you have, I guess, being part of putting it out as the landscape of black activists organising continues to involve? Like, how does the film fit into conversations now? Well, I mean, um, at the time the film was made, uh, there are many parallels between then and now. The big uh, global issue uh, relating to race and history at the time was the South African apartheid system. You know, the big issue within the Redfern Aboriginal community 50 years ago was uh, police harassment, um, uh, police brutality and police intimidation tactics. I mean, you know, pretty much, and the incarceration rate was the, the other big factor back then. And what's changed? The new big global issue relating to race and history that has triggered, um, you know, responses all around the world, just like the anti-apartheid movement did. The issue, that issue of today is the Black Lives Matter movement. And that uh, there's a, a magnificent group of young Aboriginal activists down here in Melbourne called WAR, the Warriors of the Aboriginal Resistance, and they're regularly pulling uh, 100,000 supporters every invasion day down here. And that's better crowds than we were able to pull with the old Black Power movement at our peak. So, you know, there's positive signs you know yet again you know what happened back in 72 was that a younger generation rejected the tactics and strategies of the older generation and sought their own understanding and and as a result changed the course of australian history at the aboriginal embassy which is what's in this film but uh there's a new generation of young activists like we were who've rejected the tactics and strategies of my generation because at the end of the day, my generation failed. Uh, and it's now time for this young mob to take over. And one of the great things about them to observe for me is that many of these young activists in war are in fact literally the grandchildren of some of the activists who were, who were there at the embassy with me. Mm. So, you know, uh, as a historian, uh, which, you know, as a placid academic historian these days, um, it's interesting for me to observe. And, and uh, as a historian, I see the connections mm. um, and the parallels yeah. down, down the times of history. Yeah, these, this, this idea of parallels and, um, you know, you speak of war, um, you know, warriors of Aboriginal resistance and the Black Lives Matter movement here in Australia. Um, what have those intergenerational conversations been like? And, you know, has, has the film played a role in those conversations? Like, what have their responses to the film been? You know, you speak of the, the grandchildren of the, of the people that stood by you in the 70s. Uh, you know, does the film come up sometimes? Um, yes, because... <laughs> Many of these grandchildren I've known since before they were born, you know. 
um, and uh, I've known their mothers and and their grandmothers. And the other interesting and great thing I'm observing in this young crew is, um, and Lydia Thorpe is uh, prominent among the people who I'm talking about. Um, Lydia, for example, comes from uh, an exquisite political matrilineal um, lineage, you know. Uh, her mother was an activist with me at the, in the old Black Power movement. Her grandmother I've worked with in the Aboriginal Health Service down here and her great-grandmother when I first moved to Melbourne was one of the really important community activists down here. So, you know, Lydia, someone like Lydia Thorpe's got politics in her bones and she's got more political backbone than the leader of her party, Adam Brandt, and more political uh, uh, wisdom in, in, within herself than any of the other um, Aboriginal parliamentarians in Canberra. So, you know, I think uh, there's a positive outlook. Mm. But see, my generation, uh, like every generation of Aboriginal political activists since Cook, has, uh, I'm going to die knowing that uh, the efforts that are, that my generation made failed to achieve what we were what the ultimate goal was, which is self determination, genuine self determination, political and economic independence. But with this new generation out there now, I know that the the struggle will go on, and I know that one day, long after I'm dead, we will achieve justice in this country. But it ain't going to happen too soon. Yeah, and that's why this film remains pertinent and important watching, um, you know, today and probably for years, uh, oh, definitely for years uh, and long time after us. As the film, you know, explores, you've been part of some really public activist organising that's included really important bodies that you've mentioned, um, you know, in this chat already, you know, access, access to healthcare, education and social service. Can you speak to the importance of setting up community-led services as a form of activism? Well, I mean, the, the, the organisations that we set up, we call them community survival programs. And they were the important factor in them is that they were organisations that were created, designed by Aboriginal people for Aboriginal people. It was, in a way, self-determination in action. I mean, uh, Aboriginal control of Aboriginal affairs with the was the slogan then, um, and the self-determination, the community-controlled health service movement became one of the most dynamic political movements in the country in the, the 1980s, you know, and was taken the fight right up to the government. But, you know, um, and a lot of this, a lot of the stuff that's in Ningla now is history that um, Australians know bugger all about. You know, and I, I often say to my students, ask your, ask your mothers, ask your, uh, ask your grandparents uh, what they know of this stuff that I'm teaching you about the 60s and 70s, because they were alive then. Ask them if they were aware of it. And if they aren't, weren't aware of it, that's, that tells you a lot about, um, you know, uh, what the problem is in Australia. And the problem is in this... In problem in Australia in a lot of ways is apathy and indifference. 
you know, apathy and indifference born of being um, indoctrinated into understanding a false history of Australia, which is what every Australian gets when they go to school. They get taught a false history of this nation and they grow up knowing nothing about the things that they really need to know about you know, especially in relation to Aboriginal stuff. Mm. But it extends beyond Aboriginal stuff, folks, you know. If they didn't tell you about the stuff I'm talking about, what else didn't they tell you? (laughs) Exactly. You you talk about community survival uh, services. Can you speak to how black theatre lay at the core of that 50 years ago and and how it does the same now? Well, in 1969, um, a bloke called Bob Mazza, travelled along with uh, four other Aboriginal activists to a Black Power conference in Atlanta, Georgia, in America. And on the way back to Australia, they called into New York to uh, front the United Nations. And whilst they were there, Bob Mazza visited Harlem and and saw, um, um, visited the Black Theatre there and was profoundly affected uh, and saw the possibility of theatre as a, a means of communicating a political message. And he came back to Australia. He was uh, in a show called Jack Charles is Up and Fighting, which featured the legendary Jack Charles who just recently passed away. Um, and I saw that show. <laughs> and then Bob moved to Sydney uh, and linked up with the Black Power activists there and set up um, the National Black Theatre and conned me into being in the first theatre show we ever did in Sydney uh, at the old Nimrod, which was which are these days I think is the stables in King's Cross. And the show that we put on was called Basically Black, and uh, it was the first all Aboriginal theatre show in in Australia, and uh, it uh, put the uh, the old Nimrod Theatre on its financial feet. In that we were the first show that was ever on at the original Nimrod Theatre that actually made money. I want to turn to some of the work that you continue to do outside of what's in this film. You founded the Koori History website that documents over 240 years of Black Australia's struggle for justice. Can you talk about the importance of archives and looking towards the past to envision a more just and equitable future? How my archive came about was that over the years I've lived in a multitude of places in three different states, but mostly in Melbourne. But every time I moved house over the years, I'd accumulated all this stuff. Uh, I wasn't quite a hoarder, but I was close to it. And each time I moved, I stashed bits of stuff at different places. And then about uh, 20 years ago, Um, when I finally decided to go to university, um, I realised the importance of some of the documentary, um, you know, some of the primary source information that I'd stashed at different places around the country. 
and I pulled it, pulled as much of it, tried to remember where it all was, pulled it all together and was sitting in a shed in my backyard. And um, eventually I uh, talked Victoria University into giving me some space to house the stuff so I could go through it. And I realised that there were, I'd collected um, material relating to dozens of uh, significant historical occasions, events, people, all that sort of, and I pulled it all together um, at Victoria University and today it is um, probably the most comprehensive um, uh, primary source archive of uh, historical material from the Aboriginal resistance, um, material that is uh, defined as important by Aboriginal people. Uh, the archive is controlled by Aboriginal people. I've managed to, um, for those who know anything about what's been going on in Australia in recent times, you'll be amused to know that I got a $2 million grant out of the Paul Ramsey Foundation uh, to enable me to uh, offer a series of fellowships and scholarships for up-and-coming young Aboriginal uh, scholars and academics. Um, I've got some masters and, and PhD fellowships and some postdoctoral fellowships available for good black thinkers. So if any of you are out there and any of you are going to university and any of you are interested in history and politics, uh, I have an archive that can provide you with your masters and your PhD. So come and talk to me at Victoria University, folks. It's um, it's docu documents, uh, video and film footage, uh, posters, uh, uh, books. I've I've recently I'm incorporating other collections into it. I recently was offered um, the book collection of uh, Patrick Wolf, who is um, uh, was an academic uh, associate of mine at Melbourne Uni and a very noted uh, academic at that. Um, I'm in, in the process of uh, incorporating the, the records and uh, documents from the Ilbidgeri Theatre Company down here, which is one of the most significant uh, Aboriginal theatre outfits in the country. I'm currently um, going through uh, 85 cartons of uh, material from which constitutes the 50-year history of the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, and I'm helping them to digitise their collection. I mean, the importance of what we're doing is, is identifying material that's likely to be lost and preserving it, you know, securing and preserving it. And um, that's been something that's very been, you know, the area we're looking at has been very much neglected uh, because uh, white uh, academic historians tend to focus on uh, the writings of each other, you know, and um, already the material that's emerging from my archive is showing that much of the history that's been taught, even of the period that I was part of, 
in the last 50 years is is just inaccurate. You know, that's the uh, best way I could put it. Mm. Dr. Gary, in a lot of your work, you've been really generous in sharing what solidarity and allyship can look like. Are you able to speak to the importance of forming meaningful connections across cultures? How does that, how does that arrive at a process of decolonization? Well, I mean, in the first instance back then, um, we were very much interested in uh, um, what was happening in the decolonization in Africa in particular and also in the uh, Asia and the Pacific. Um, we very early on in the piece established uh, relationships with the American Indian movement. Um, we established relationships with uh, similar um, young political outfits like we were in, in New Zealand. Uh, um, the other thing about decolonization at the time was as a result, many future um, leaders of countries in what will becoming independent nations in Africa were actually studying in Australian universities. And we got to uh, meet some of these people and also Pacific uh, people, Pacific leaders. The first Prime Minister, the first independent, Vanuatu. Um, we met uh, Walter Linney uh, when he was still leader of the Vanuatu uh, party. Those um, uh, those sort of initial connections began on the basis of uh, our shared experience of colonialism. Um, but um, you know, we also developed. We're also influenced by and developed very very strong links with uh, the the Black Panther Party in Oakland, California. Uh, uh, with um, you know, because we saw. We believe that the experience of what we, we were reading was going on in in uh, Oakland, California, was almost identical to what was happening in Redfern to us uh, at the hands of the police. And we were getting we were we act we Aboriginal activists in Redfern were probably better informed than all of the rest of Australia about what was happening politically in in the ghettos in America because. We were getting first-hand accounts from American soldiers who were passing through Sydney on R&R from Vietnam. You know, many of those soldiers who the Yanks come and stuck in Sydney for a couple of weeks at a time, um, though many of those soldiers were African-American soldiers who came uh, uh, looking for the black community in Sydney, and the only black community in Sydney was us. And so they came and visited with us. They brought with them uh, not only first-hand accounts what was happening in, in their hometowns, um, they also brought some pretty good weed with them, but they also brought um, a lot of um, African-American political uh, literature that you just couldn't get mm. in Australia at the time, apart from Bob Girl's Third World Bookshop in Goulburn Street in Sydney. <laughs> where we used to go and steal books from him <laughs> yeah. until, you know, until the day that he came up to us, Bob Gould, uh, very, ex some of the older people, if there are any listeners, they're old. The older listeners will remember him. He was the eccentric bookseller um, selling left-wing books in Goldman Street. And one day he came up to us because we couldn't afford to 
buy these books. And so we'd go in and, and lift them. And one day Bob Girl come up to us and said, oh, listen, you guys, instead of just knocking them off, why don't you just give me a list and I'll give them to you. And we said, sweet. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so, you know, that was, that was one of the ways in which we acquired political literature that, you know, wasn't available anywhere else. Mm. Before you wrap up, I want to ask you what, what you hope people can take away from being able to see Ningla Arna, probably for the first time ever. What do you hope they can take away from seeing it? I hope they, it gives them a realisation of how little um, they know about their own history, because this is not just Aboriginal history, this is Australian history. These people that are in this film change the course of Australian history. And I tell my students these days, look at us people in that film. We were young. We were, we were half educated. Um, and we, we educated ourselves in the course of what we did. So we were young, we were uneducated, we none of us had any money. We the one thing every Aboriginal person in Redfern at the time, and there were 35,000 Aboriginal people in Redfern at that time, you know, refugees from around the state. But what us young people had was nothing. And we showed that it doesn't matter how disempowered or impoverished or downtrodden you are, if you get, if you, if something makes you angry enough, and what made us angry was police harassment and intimidation, if you, if something makes you angry enough, do something about it. But you can't do it by yourself. You've got to get together with others like you who think the same way as you, and you get organised and you educate yourselves as to what it's going to take to change the things you want to change. Now, you know, we changed the course of Australian history. But even in doing that, um, uh, in the long term, um, uh, well, you know, we set, out, we set out to change our world, and we did change our world, and our mistake, my generation's mistake, was that we took our eye off the ball and the bastards changed it back. <laughs> so learn the lesson. You can change the world, but when you do, make sure you keep your eye on the ball, folks. <laughs> Dr. Gary Foley, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your time with us. Thank you for bringing this film anew for new generations to see across the country. Ningla Ana screening in Sydney this week. We'll add details to our program page at fbiradio.com on where you can see it. Dr. Gary, thank you so much again and, uh, and have a good week. No problem. Anytime. I've made bad choices But to let go of you would be my day how is your family? How are your friends? Race matters. 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 Race matters.